We are on our way again today, March the 4th, 2018. It's lecture discussion number 13 on the book of Joel. And, uh, well, now, last Sunday, February the 21st, lecture number 12, I chose to do something that is quite rare. If you were not here for that, uh, I think it may be the only time I have ever done it in my so-called career, at least uh, outside of teaching high school. So it's quite rare for me, and that was to tell a story. In this case, it was the account of John Harper's drowning death in the North Atlantic on April 15, 1912, which was the sinking of the HMS Titanic. And I say April 15th because I believe the timeline of John Harper's death would be in the early morning darkness of April 15th. The ship crashed into the iceberg at 11.40 p.m. on the 14th. And if you are familiar with the death of John Harper, and I know that's quite a bit of you prior to me even doing it, but uh, uh, so if you are already familiar, that's terrific. Or if you were here last week and were able to maintain a state of wakefulness, then you would know that uh, John Harper took advantage of his remaining time. I can't emphasize the word time enough. He did so in a way that I have yet to consider surpassed. And now I should interject two disclaimers right here. Disclaimer number one, it's necessary to combine and include consciousness with attendance when referencing Cliffside Lectures. An alert condition is not to be assumed ever here for obvious reasons. Caveat number two, I am certain that others, many, many others, men, women, children, have also in times of great tragedy or trial have done extraordinary things. And I'm aware of some. Mostly, uh, I have searched these out in the Civil War and World Wars One and Two. Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs would be another example. As I'm re- thinking about it, I I remember a priest, a tremendous true story of a priest who uh, found himself in one of the Nazi prisoner of war camps. And a man was being tortured to death. He was being put into what's called the hot box. And the hot box was left out in the hot sun. It was a metal container. It had no ventilation, very little uh, air. And it was small and cramped, and they, the priest said that he would take that man's place, knowing that the man would die. And he went into the hot box with one other man, and he died after singing hymns for hours. And he died of heat stroke and thirst. So that's another one of these things that a man of faith has done in history for someone else. And he did it for the same reasons that John Harper did it for. So I know there are many stories, and they're incredible. Uh, They're as powerful testimonies as John Harper's. But with that said, John Harper stands out to me, particularly impactful, I guess. He was relentless for seeking out the unsaved on the Titanic. Once he knew it was going to go down... All he did was find the unsaved. And uh, so I have reserved a special place for him in my own subjective list of those who knew what to do. Notice how I said that. He knew what to do when his time had come. And that was ultimately the point of setting aside my dogmatic methodology to recount this true story about a mass death by drowning because that happened to be in the subject we were in. I hope you understand that connection. That was my primary intention. To answer the question between the differences, I'm sorry, to answer the question of the differences between Genesis 7 and Revelation 19 because there are Extraordinary differences between these two. And I want to know why. And that is, as you know, I hope you know, the topic or the subject of Joel 2 and 3. There's not only differences, but there's similarities between Genesis 7 and Revelation 9 also. 
of the 150 days. So Revelation 9 sends you to Joel uh, 2 and 3. Understanding why Genesis 7, the flood, is different than Genesis or Revelation 19 is very important uh, to solving Joel. Why did God drown? I'm sorry, I can't even speak today. I had a rough week. Why did God drown the world? That's the question. Genesis 7, 17 through 24. I have made the case that he did so to insert time into the death process. He gave how many people time? Billions, if Henry Morris is correct. And it's impossible not to notice that that is the opposite of Revelation 19, 11 through 21, where there was no time. Revelation 19, 11 through 21 is also a mass extinction event, as is Genesis 7. To emphasize the point, at Revelation 19, 11, 21, it is not death by water, by suffocation. It is immediate death, instant death, no time provided. And I want to know why that is so. And I believe the answer is in Joel 2 and 3. Last week we began to investigate why this will be so, no time at all. And we identified the mark of the beast as being something that is profoundly involved in this. The worship of the Satan-Antichrist combination is a definitive facet. The fact that Satan and the Antichrist combine is a definitive facet. And my purpose for raising John Harper was to give a more recent, relatable, large-scale drowning incident that contained the sacrifice of men and women who knew that they would be shortly in the presence of their Creator. One that you would recognize um, a little bit or uh, be able to assimilate a little bit more so. That was my purpose. So these folks knew they're going to shortly be in the presence of their Creator. They knew it. They had no doubt. They knew that their creator was Jesus Christ, John 1, 3. Their judge, the judge of all things, Daniel 7, 9 through 10, John 5, 22. That's who they're going to see, and they're going to see him very shortly, and they, they knew it. The ones that were saved for sure knew it. And so I wanted to relate that as much as I could. Those who, uh, those who witnessed their sacrificial testimonies, if you will, and my my attempt to do so has John Harper at the forefront. Now, that might not have made any sense. I'm trying to read it to you, and I'm going, boy, I don't know if that made any sense. <laughs> Didn't make any sense to me either, so I guess that'll be two of us. <laughs> That's often the case here at a beautiful downtown cliffside, isn't it? Which is neither beautiful downtown or on a cliff. I have to keep saying that just in case somebody is trying to find us, which we hide. Now, let me try it this way. Let me try it again. Dying in the water as the white star line listed, and I believe that they listed it in an oblivious way. Die, there are two lists, as I said last week. There's the known lost and the known saved. This is what they did. I hope you, uh, if you weren't here, please uh, check this out. I didn't do it justice, but it's amazing what happened in that Titanic. And no one ever knows the story. They don't know who John Harper is, and he is the story, frankly. And he would never allow me to say that. He would say Christ is the story. But the White Star Line said... They put a list, known lost and known saved. And the people, the known saved, the unceasing efforts of the known saved, by those efforts, the known lost were extended the only hope of salvation. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John Harper shouted and screamed this for hours is what he did. He literally did it to his dying breath. 
Our physical breath, as you know, I hope you recognize this. I'll beat it into you until you get sick of it. It's a symbol. You go outside in the cold. That's easy to do here. We call it summer. Mm. It's true. I've played softball in the supposed summer, 6 o'clock at night in July, and went, oh, there's my physical breath. And I know that it is a symbol My physical breath, your physical breath, our physical breath is a symbol for our spiritual soul, if you will. Our God-given, Christ-given breath of life. They have a relationship. One speaks of the other. And I can't repeat that enough. Anyway, as incredible as it was that these that were known saved, they are on the known saved list. I'm using it different than the white star line, aren't I? They meant physical. If only they had known spiritual. But those on the known saved list, what they did as their physical death became imminent, I want you to consider the process that they had, why they did it. Also, in concert, consider the known lost or the unsaved, because they're there together on the boat. They know they're going to die. Because the known saved was trying to do what to the known lost? They can't do it. It's Christ that does it. But the known saved had a job to do. They're in the process. They're in the, they're in the system, if you wish. They're trying to get you out of the known lost column and move you over to the known saved column. That's what they're trying to do. What made them do that? They didn't fight for their own lives. They fought for the lives of the known lost. John Harper, if you were here last week, said, Women and children and the unsaved in the lifeboats. That's what he was screaming. He wanted the unsaved to live longer. No one thought the unsaved were going to live very long regardless. They'd probably die in the lifeboat. He's going to give them as much time as he could. That's his plan. Why does he think like this? This is the changing of the known lost to the known saved column. That's an eternal one-way only transference. Once you're in the known saved, you can't get to the known lost. That's an important thing that John Harper knew. He also knew how to do it, or what the process, if you will, to keep repeating that word. What's the method to get me over here? And then I'm kept over here. Even if I'm at the end of my life, even if I've had a life of incredible sin and wickedness, I can move. John Harper knew that. Jesus Christ, God himself, is the one who writes us into his book of life. He writes our name. Now, his name for us, the Bible indicates, is not our name for us. He has a name that is unique for all of us. But he writes us into his book of life, the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 13.8. He also knows, can't get that word out enough, wonderful scripture in Genesis 15 Abraham asks, how can I know that I am saved? How can I know that I am in the known saved? He never asks, how can I feel I'm saved? He only asks, how can I know I'm saved? It isn't a feeling. But Christ knows those who are in the, in the book of, uh, the Lamb's book of life. He also knows that who are in the other books, if you will, opened at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. So he is the knower of the saved, and he is also the knower of the lost. That's obvious, I hope. He's omniscient outside of time. So the obvious question becomes now on the Titanic, how many of the 1,517 people that died, most in the water, after the ship sank... Some went down with the ship and were trapped in there. How many of the 1,517 that the White Star Line declared lost were really lost? 
How good a job did these people who were saved that stayed on that boat as it sank do, is the question. How many of the 1,517 perished as God defines perished? Not as White Star defines perished. I submit that it was a very small number. Probably a handful. Maybe none. But definitely a small number. We have the testimony of many people who made it into those lifeboats. I can do the math. I can extrapolate. That brings us back to John Harper and the dance band on the Titanic that played Near My God to Thee because that's what John Harper wanted them to play. You see, as impressive as John Harper was, and as good as the story is, it's not the story. Because it should not be a a telling of what John Harper and the known saved did that cold, dark night. It needs to be more so known why they did it. What made them do what they did. Put it another way. Why did John Harper give up his life, knowingly make his six-year-old daughter an orphan, to preach to those who also chose to give up their lives on the Titanic, some of them unsaved? Because they also knew, both Bliss knew, everyone knew, that surviving the sinking of the Titanic was not possible. Certain death, yet those who chose to stay on board, and again, only six survived being in that freezing North Atlantic water. Six came came out alive. We talked about a man named Webb last week, the last convert of John Harper. So everyone on the ship ultimately was correct. Physical death was soon and assured. It was inescapable. So why, why, why did they do this? They gave up their instinct. They stopped the urge to survive. Stood on the ship and died. Why did they do that? What reasoning was consistent through all 1,516? The captain. Stood there and went down. Amazing man. Let me try it another way. What specifically did John Harper know? I call this the whys of John Harper. I talked a little bit about it to a couple of you last week. John Harper had figured out the whys. He knew the answers to the whys. For example, give you some of them. Why are humans animals with breath in their nostrils, why are we designed the way we are designed with this breath? Why? Why are we a physical body and a spiritual soul combination? I asked just a few minutes ago, why does Satan combine with the Antichrist? What do the spiritual realities, let's just boom, completely go off the subject. But looking at the angelic host, what, do, what did they think when they saw human beings made this way? Did they know why? I believe John Harper knew why. Now let's go a little bit further. Why is there a spiritual reality? Why is there a physical reality or creation? Why do I have both of these? What, one wasn't good enough? Apparently not. God's omniscient. Why is there a physical breath and a spiritual breath of life? Why the two? Besides the connection, why is there two? Why must be why must we be saved? Saved from what? Why is belief in Jesus Christ the only salvation? 
Why isn't it also something else? Why isn't it a combination? Ah, there's that word again. It's not. It is the only salvation. Belief. Why not works? Why is there a lake of fire? Why is there judgment? Why is there these two classifications, known lost and known saved, as God defines them? If you prefer to group these whys into one huge why, ultimately it is why is God doing it this way? To repeat, why is there no other way to be saved except to believe on the name and to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? John Harper, in my opinion, had solved all of those. All of those whys and more. There's a whole bunch of whys of John Harper. I know he did because I know what he said. I know he said, believe on the name of Christ and you will be saved. He said it over and over and over again as loud as he could till he died. That tells me that he knew something unbelievable. Not unbelievable. He knew something astonishing. And that's why he stayed on the Titanic. And that is why I ask why all the time, in case you want to know. I stubbornly believe asking why is far more important than describing what. That is why I don't tell stories. And I do it once. In this cliffside endeavor of mine. That is not on a cliff. <laughs> the other two are relative, aren't they? I guess, you know, downtown and beautiful. I could say I was beautiful. You would laugh. I actually know, this is, <laughs> I know of men, I've met them who have told me that they consider themselves to be beautiful men. Oh my. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I wanted to say all kinds of things. I knew none of it would uh, be beneficial. And to evaluate just how big a fella is this. Because <laughs> I'm going to light him up. And I didn't necessarily think that was a good plan. But anyway, where did I get that from? John Harper, what John Harper demonstrated came from knowing why we must be saved and why Jesus Christ is the only salvation. And you may have long ago, and that's a relative term meaning 20 minutes hence in this context, that what is a physical property. What John Harper did is a physical property. Why is a mental property. And why I avoid telling you what things happened. I also know that science calls itself science, cannot describe very many whys. They can tell you what happened. They can describe gravity, but they can't tell you what it is. So that's another reason I deal with the why. Why is a mental aspect, a mental property. That which is physical, belief is a spiritual function. It's identified as superior to works all over Scripture. Works are physical constructions or physical manifestations. Prayer, worship is spiritual. It's unseen, Matthew 6, John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. That is a verse that is hardly ever correctly understood. They think spirit is emotional. They have no idea what the truth is. What truth? Which truth is he telling you to know? But John Harper knew why belief was the system of God. Which is why John Harper urged everyone who said they were known lost. He went around them asking them, are you lost? Are you saved? If they said lost, he told them what to do. And he didn't tell them to do something. What did he tell them? He told them to believe something. John Harper urged everyone who said that they were lost to believe something, to believe on Jesus Christ. He did not tell them to do something. Salvation is spiritual. It's a renewing of the spirit of man, the mind. 
And all of that sends us back to Revelation 9, Joel 2 and 3, and Genesis 3, which is the subject of today's lecture. The woman repented of her unbelief. She moved from unbelief, uh, the unbelief column, to the believe column. That's what she did. John Harper, if he had been around her, would have been screaming at her. Believe on the name of Jesus Christ, you will be saved. She moved, unbelief to believing, and was renamed because of that, the mother of all who lived, or all who live, the known saved. I wanted you to contrast the ones who experienced the two woes of Revelation 9. At the end of those two woes, they refused to believe. They refused to repent. Overwhelming evidence, it doesn't matter to them. They refuse to repent of their wicked ways, and they continue in wickedness and evil. Why do they do that? Certain death is imminent. It is three and a half years away when they make that decision. They're out of time. And they're out of time because many are going to die in all kinds of tribulational Circumstances. As you are very much aware, I have deposited over the few weeks that we've been doing Joel now. How many lectures? Let me count. Thirteen. This is number thirteen. I've deposited a pile of questions, and they have been accumulating for weeks. And uh, so today I'm going to see how many we can dispatch. My goal is one. That's probably a reach. Manage your expectations here, right? This, as you might remember, is a study on, it's purported to be a study on the book of Joel. And some might suggest that since it is supposed to be a study on the book of Joel, perhaps perhaps the lectures should contain passages from the book of Joel. That would be very, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, Appropriate. And I take these suggestions to be friendly advice, and I get them a lot. And being the pliable, amenable, eager to please, sensitive, warm, fuzzball that I am. <laughs> I thought today that we should return to the incredible mysteries that are in Joel chapter 2. They're incredible. Specifically Joel 2.12. Um, which uh, coincidentally... If you have a Bible that labels these things above the chapters, most of your Bibles will call it, uh, will will name it, Israel's call to repentance. Doesn't do that, huh? Too bad. But most will. It's the call to repentance. God is calling them to believe Him. And as soon as I say a call to repentance, you say, aha! Because that is the subject of Revelation 9 and the subject of Genesis 3. Therefore, we will begin here in a minute with Joel 2, 12 through 17. So let me start putting this on. We're going to do Joel 2. Actually, 2-1. We're going to do all of Joel, but specifically um, 12 through 17 mainly today, I hope. And we're going to do that by reading Genesis 1-22, Genesis 1-28, Genesis... I should do 6, but I won't. Genesis 8-17... Uh, Genesis 9, 1 through 7. That's how we're going to do, 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 that's how we're going to do Joel 2. You probably were expecting Joel 2. Okay, none of you are. Let the, let, let the sub, let the record show no one expected Joel 2. Okay. All of these, and of course, Uh, many others, but all of these that I just gave you are related to each other, but they connect directly to Joel. Joel 2.22 to be specific. 
I can't even put the all on the board there. I ran out of room. And Genesis 8.17 is especially mysterious when you read it in light of Genesis 9.1-7. through 7. That's why they're together there. As most of you know, this is the mystery of be fruitful and multiply, as well as the mystery of Peter's vision, Acts 10. I think it's 9 through the end of the chapter. I'm not positive about that. Check me out. I am suggesting, obviously, that Joel chapter 2 brings information to bear on these subjects that are in Genesis and Acts 10. So let's take a uh, a run at it here and see what we can accomplish. Genesis 1.22. Read it many times, but look at it a little bit more carefully today, I hope for you. And God blessed them. Okay? Then God said, verse 20, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living souls. As Bill Fast said today, those are uh, living souls. That's how they are described. Nefesh Kayah. And let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament, firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living soul that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that, saw that it was good. And God blessed them. So here's 122. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Now, 128. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and every living soul that moves on the earth. Now, Genesis 7, 17, or 8, 17. I wanted you to notice the fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? Why does he want fruitful and multiply? What's his reason? Why? We are Genesis 8, 17. Bring out with you. This is now being God. Then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you. Birds, cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. Nine. 1 through 7, Genesis. So God blessed Noah and his son and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and all that moves on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as green as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever shed man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of man, I'm sorry, in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So just to recap that, we see the blessing of God and his commandment, his order to be fruitful and multiply. When you see multiply, God's saying multiply. Where else is multiply prominent? That's right. Genesis 6. Put Genesis 6 on a stick with a spinning plate, because that's what we're doing, right? You got a handful of sticks, and they all have plates spinning on top of them, and this is what you're doing. These are the fruitful and multiplied mystery plates. Okay, anyway, so, Genesis 1, 22, 128. Everything is good there. 
in the beginning. Everything is good as God defines good. What's not there in Genesis 1.22 and 1.28? There is no death. There's never been death. Physical death. Certainly no death at one, physical death at 122 and 128. The second law of thermodynamics, just to throw that in there, is not what we experience currently, though it's there. It's different than it is now. There is no curse of death. That's my point. Yea, a point. No curse of death when God blesses his living souls and commands them to be fruitful and multiply. And he assigns to, to the man the authority to have dominion. Now, this is very similar to Christ will rule with a rod of iron. Well, that rod is a shepherd's rod. God is, in, I'm sorry, man to have authority or to have dominion means to make decisions to care and nurture and shepherd. There is no death. Keep that in mind. And this is how it was to be. This is how, this is the original design, if you will, in Genesis 1.22 and 1.28. This is the pre-fall, pre-flood earth. And it was a very much different in its ecological makeup, radically different from what we see today. We don't have any idea. I get a biggest ironic, I just, the irony of people who say the mountains are beautiful. Ooh, I love the mountains. The mountains are evidence of the flood, mass extinction. That ecology that we see today, this uh, geological structure that we see today, radically unlike what was at Genesis 1.22 and 1.28. What does he do ultimately to the mountains, except for one? Levels them all. My advice, don't build on a mountain. He does not seem to like them. Why not? The land mass... In Genesis 1.22 and 1.28, when he says, be fruitful and multiply, I want you to ask the obvious questions. How much land mass is there? I will submit that it's far more extensive. The water systems were not the oceans that now cover much of the earth as a result of the flood. Our climate has barely any resemblance to Adam's climate. You are aware, I'm sure, that uh, they have found frozen trees on Antarctica, right? Forests. It's interesting. But our climate, no resemblance to the climate of Genesis 122 and 128. Hardly recognizable. I submit that we're going to be astonished when Christ restores the earth. It's not going to look like this. It is unimaginable what he's going to do. Ezekiel 47, 7 through 12. Let me put that on there. It gives you a little glimpse. He not only tells you what it will look like, but how it will happen. What will happen is water will come out of the Holy of Holies in the temple. A river will flow out. And it will hit everything. It will hit the oceans. And what it does is transform them. That's in the millennial. Again, it just is a small picture that Ezekiel gives us. Very dim, but I'll give you a start. Anyway. Okay, anyway, so. Genesis 1.22, Genesis 1.28, 1.29-31. The earth and the waters, how it was to be, how it was in its original organic form. Note how I phrase that. In its original organic form. Versus its original mineral form. That is Genesis 1 versus Ezekiel 28. 
Now, after Genesis 3, after Genesis 6, there is a reprising of Genesis 1.22 and 1.28 in a completely, a completely distinct separated condition from Genesis 1. Does that make sense? I carry forward, be fruitful and multiply, but I don't have anything like this. This is gone. But yet fruitful and multiply still is in place. Ask why. When we read Genesis 8.17, try to picture the animals and these people coming out of the ark. What's there? Decimation. Desolation. It's, it's utter disaster. Evidence of death is all there is. What were they used to? What did they see? What do they see now? You want to think of it as in a more relative term, something you can grasp. Imagine that you have a beautiful home and you go home to it and in its place is my house. Okay? You would just be, you would be wailing and crying. I'm working on it. My balcony's coming along pretty good. Someday I'll put pictures of it and you will just be amazed at what Lori can do. Astonishing. (laughs) But what they saw when they left the ark, what they faced compared to Genesis 1, going from a lush, granted sinful, but it still it had the vestiges of a perfect environment. There was no uh, when fruitful and multiply were given. Again, let me repeat: no death. Now, uh, death came obviously from Genesis three, and there was nothing but death all the way through Genesis six. But now they're in a cursed death state, uh, and here we are. And so Genesis 8:17 does it make any sense bring out with you every living thing all of all flesh that is with you birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply what's the obvious question why it doesn't seem to make any sense let's just stay in the ark die what's the point why would we want to multiply and be fruitful on this mess Why be fruitful and multiply in an earth and seas that are like this? Constant death. Not much different, one might think, from Genesis 6. But that would be a mistake. The earth and the seas are extremely different. But repeat, why fill the place? How much room is there comparatively? Nothing close to the pre-flood. Nowhere near. Why does he want you to multiply in a death environment. And I submit the fact that there's nowhere near the land mass and the waters are completely changed. That's the key. That's the defining piece of information. I believe the understanding of the size, the reduction of the habitable land mass, it likely reduced by at least half, probably more, when one contemplates the subterranean or the substructure aspect of the waters that were in the pre-flood world, how that all worked, uh, it's, it is possible that the organic availability is limited to a quarter, maybe even a fifth of what was the original design. Certainly the species reduction has been remarkable. The ecological loss was, uh, was enormous. The land animals faced a disaster. They had hardly any land. Yet they are told to multiply nonetheless. What is the reasoning of that? Why is God doing that? And as I said, it gets worse. Genesis 9, 1 through 7. It gets really worse. Acts 10, 9 through 15. So let's go do that. In, in Genesis 9, 1 through 7, now, the, the, now Noah is going to kill them and eat them. Okay, let's multiply. We've become targets. 
Look at look at the Acts ten. Because there, here's your compliment. The mystery of Acts ten. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. Notice Peter went up on a housetop to pray, to get away from people. Very important. People that pray in front of other people make me suspicious. You do it, you do it humbly. You draw attention to yourself with how well you can move yourself and scream, then I think you are a Pharisee. Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and he saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet. I believe this is a talit. That which they put over their heads with the blue tassels, right? Numbers 15. And saw hope, heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. There you go. Kill and eat. Reconcile that with be fruitful and multiply. Kill and need is as far from nurture and shepherd as you can get. Obviously, this the eating, Christ says to us, this is my body, eat. This is my blood, drink. Kill and eat. Don't drink the blood. Start to put those all to, uh, to the, in the right order in the meaning. Acts 9, or 10, 9 through 15 is another incredible mind-numbing mystery. The the, uh, abolishing, the abolition of the Levitical dietary restrictions, the unclean clean. What does it all mean? Eventually, this discussion returns us to the death of animals. Physical death. Why physical death? John Harper knew the answer to that. Physical death accomplishes many things. I'll give you a few. I'll give you one for sure. Physical manifestation of evil ends at physical death. It's hard to do physical things when you're dead. I know, we pay big money for that, right? Let me put it another way. Sin, wickedness is reduced at physical death to a mental property. That's not, that did not go past God's wisdom. He did it purposely. Be fruitful and multiply is then directly connected to why animals die. Does that make sense? How is that so? Approach it from the converse. What if animals didn't die? What would it be then? What if kill and eat isn't there? What happens? Let's go read some more verses here where we're shutting it down. Zechariah 8. Amazing. Zechariah 8. 12. This is one of the promises of the millennium. For the seed shall be prosperous. What's that imply? Right now the seed is not prosperous. Some of you are gardeners. I see Bonnie prominently gardening. Bonnie grows wonderful things. But what she grows is not described as prosperous by God. It's going to be. It's not now. What's the word we want for today? Okay. You can imagine what I said there and move on. The vine shall give its fruit. Right now, the vine is not giving its fruit. The ground shall give her increase. We got nothing. And the heavens shall give their due, D-E-W. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. He's talking about the Jews that make it into the millennium. Joel 2.21. Amazing, fantastic verse. Fear not, O land. 
This again, a millennial reference. Be glad, not the restoration of all things. This is the thousand year reign of Christ. Fear not, O land. So what's that tell you about the land today? The land fears today. Be glad and rejoice. What's that tell you about the land today? There's no rejoicing. For the Lord has done marvelous things. This is Ezekiel 47, 7 through 12. For the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field. So what do you know about the beasts of the field now? They're afraid. It actually says the, the literal crying and groaning. For the open pastures are springing up. And the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down on you. Heavens do. The former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. I will restore you. So... Something is coming that has you cannot even imagine what it is. It doesn't look like this. The beasts will no longer be afraid. We go to 2.27. Then you shall know, know. Once I do this, who's doing it? The king is doing it. Christ is doing this. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. This will tell you very, very quickly that he is in the Holy of Holies in the midst of Israel. Jesus Christ is on the throne and the waters that come out are changing the earth in the millennium towards what it was in Genesis 1.28. Then you shall know that I... I'm in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never be put to shame again. He is saying that they will know that it is him that is God. They, the nation of Israel will know that Jesus Christ is the creator God, and he is the God, the I am of the nation of Israel, and therefore the, na- the God of all creation. Verse 32, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is word for word what John Harper said on the Titanic. He got it perfect. How did he know that? If you read over here in 2.12, and therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. That is the call to repentance for the nation of Israel. They shall know that Jesus Christ is the Lord God, their God. They don't know it now. And his people will be declared just. They will never be put to shame again. His people will be acquitted, upheld as right about who was God all along. And those who mocked and sneered will be judged as evil, as wicked, as wrongful. And the restoration of his creation will begin. It's the millennium first. It's the seventh day. The eighth day is coming after the seventh day. And it is the restoration of all things. And it is the eternal day. But that's what's going to happen. Knowing why he's doing it helps you tremendously. Next week, we'll keep kicking it. See how we do.